black and beautiful. Hello, this is Kelly. And this is Camille. And you are listening to Bold, Black, and Beautiful. So welcome. Hello again, everyone. Thanks for tuning in again. So this episode is going to dive into what it means for us to be Black. Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel like that's a fully loaded question and 30 minutes is definitely not going to cover it. But (laughs) this is just the definition. (laughs) Yes, we'll just kind of give you some highlights of our experience and you'll definitely hear more over the course of the episodes uh, this season. But um, so, yeah, so let's jump right in. So for me, uh, growing up as a black American, so I was born in D.C. and spent the first eight years of my life in D.C., So if anyone knows about D.C., back then when I was growing up in like the late 80s, early 90s, you know, it was known as Chocolate City. So everywhere you went, there was a black person. There was black people everywhere. I went to school with pretty much all black kids. And, you know, towards the end, before we moved to New York, there were some Hispanic kids coming in and stuff. But, you know, we all just meshed well. We all got along. You know, everything was cool. You know, no one ever question my identity or anything like that. But when I moved to New York and started school in Mount Vernon, which was also a very heavily black populated area. So you're just you, you know, you are who you are, you're Camille, you're Kelly, you know, there wasn't a lot of questioning about anyone's identity or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But I always loved that about New York. Yes. Also. Yes. But (laughs) caveat, but Okay. <laughs> when we moved to Queens, there it was a whole other ball game because mm. you know before I had been in areas that were heavily black populated, so the schools were mostly black. The public schools were mostly black kids that I went to. So when we moved to Queens, I was in a very diverse school. You know, there were people of everything there. You know, black kids, white kids, Asian kids, Hispanic kids, like everything. Not everybody was brown skin because even though I had gone to school with some Hispanic kids before. Most of them were brown skin, so they still mm. looked a lot like me. Um, you know, so when I started that school, and that was in fifth grade, when I started uh, elementary school in Queens, they were like, "Oh, what are you? You must be mixed with something," you know. And I'm like, "What are you talking about? I'm not mixed with anything. I'm black." They're like, "No, you can't be black. Your hair is too nice. You talk too good." Blah blah blah. And I was like, "Excuse me." <laughs> <laughs> so this was just like a whole like what is going on and I was in fifth grade so I had come a long way like I was at least 10 or 11 years old before anyone ever you know tried to question who I was and mm-hmm. so that was a really interesting experience for me um and to get that so young is just had to be so interesting yeah it was it was really random so I think because I had had it so good before it didn't really bother me initially but you know, we'll get more into that later. But yeah, like, what was your experience like, Kelly? Um, So I grew up in a suburb of Detroit. It's a metro Detroit area called Southfield. Um, and it's always a huge debate uh, when you're asking people, uh, you know, uh, who are from Detroit. Like, you know, people from Detroit will be like, you're not from Detroit. <laughs> you're from Southfield, boo. Like, <laughs> But actually, it's just so interesting um, keeping that in mind because... So there is, like you said, there's downtown Detroit and then there's the suburbs. But a lot of what was happening when I was, you know, in the 90s and the 90s um, and 
late 80s. You know, my sister was born in 89. Um, my parents had just relocated uh, from Ann Arbor to Southfield because Ann Arbor is where they went to grad school. Um, and that's where they met each other and they had an apartment after they got married and before they were to have their first child, they wanted to buy their first home. So they bought a house in Southfield. They themselves had grown up in down, um, like close to downtown Detroit. They were, but Detroit proper, <laughs> you know, the hood, if you will. <laughs> but yeah, that experience for them, you know, it came with a lot of, you know, hardship and things like that. And I think as a, as a, as a way to provide a better life for their children. They wanted to move out to the suburbs, which is what a lot of people were doing um, at that time. So moving out to the suburbs because, you know, it's less crowded. There were better opportunities, better schools, things like that. So yeah, <clears throat> I went to elementary school at St. Bede. Woo woo. St. Bede is no longer standing, but it was the smallest, it was the smallest little Catholic school. I think we had maybe 300 students max in the entire school. Mm. I went from kindergarten all the way up to eighth grade in the same building, <laughs> just different hallways. <laughs> um, so that was it's in itself interesting. But from the time I was in kindergarten all the way up to eighth grade, I watched my school become less and less just like, first it was primarily white, then it became more multiculturally diverse. And then as I started to graduate, it was definitely more of a black school. And a lot of that is because of something called, you know, redlining mm. in Detroit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just like the shifting mm-hmm. neighborhoods and just watching it happening in real time was really interesting. And with that, you know, came this sort of stereotyping of folks who live in the suburbs and what that meant to like, you know, the the word that kids would throw around a lot was like an Oreo. I got called an Oreo mm-hmm. a lot. <laughs> so, you know, black on the outside, white mm-hmm. on the inside. I would go to my grandparents' house on the weekends. So my mom's mom and my my mom's mom and dad, um, their house on the weekend, and you know, being playing like playing with the kids in the neighborhood, they'd be like, "Why do you talk like that? Like, why are you why are you sound like that? Are you a Spice Girl? <laughs> like, you're an Oreo? You talk you talk you know like like you're British." It was very interesting. When they asked you if you were a Spice Girl, you should be like, "Yes." <laughs> We were obsessed with the Spice Girls, which was the funniest thing. But they were saying it because, you know, the way that we spoke. Yeah, we used to play Spice Girls on the playground all the time. (laughs) Um, We love the Spice Girls. Yeah. And then from there... Yeah, it was just it was just interesting. You're hearing that in elementary school. And then by the time you're I was in eighth grade, really trying to do all of these things to fit into Black culture just because it became like the predominant, you know, thing that to aspire to mm-hmm. like back then went to, um, like I said, a lot of my class by the time I graduated in eighth grade was um, predominantly black. <laughs> and Like this was like Jersey dress, Kangle, like Timberlands, like uh, uh, maybe this was a, just a Detroit thing. Cause <laughs> I can tell you're looking at me like, like what? I know, I'm like, what is that? Um, no, but like, those are all the things that, you know, people were buying coach purses and like, you know, things like that. It was just like a very, um, you'd call it like ethnic, like streetwear mm. culture, you know, that was what mm-hmm. was popular to yeah. do back then. So that was what we aspired to. Yeah. And then from there going to high school, I guess I felt some freedom and liberty to like reinvent myself a little bit. And so it was just an interesting transition to high school. But I want to hear about you in high school. Yeah. Mm, I don't want to hear about me in high school. Middle school and high school was the worst. <laughs> like 
No, it was the worst for me. Like, that was not a good experience. I'm just lucky I made it out mm. alive because that was not a pleasant experience for me. Um, and I think it had more to do with, like, just what was going on with my life personally and, like, with my family and I stuff than, than the yeah. schools itself. But the schools definitely didn't help. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, I mean, for – so after that initial school that I went to in Queens – um, my mom was like, you're not going back to the school. <laughs> you're going to Catholic mm. school. So for for the last three years, so from sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, I was in Catholic school. So I had a little taste of your experience, Kelly. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> the good old Catholic school. My brother started off with me. So, you know, he started from pre-K, you know, and we're eight years apart. So by the time I was in eighth grade, he was in kindergarten. Mm-hmm. So he continued on in that school until sixth grade. So he definitely had more of the Catholic school experience than I did. Okay. But but anyway, um, it was just it was a really interesting experience. Like, I don't I don't feel like the kids really cared about race or, you know, there were a lot of like racial issues or anything among the kids. But looking back now as an adult and as an empowered person of color, mm-hmm. I see where there was a lot of racism and um just like judgmental issues from like teachers and administrators, which is crazy to me because most of them were, were white. Like Mm. I can't really remember definitely not in Catholic school. I can't remember any black teachers or anybody that was really other than white. Mm -hmm. And in high school, there were some teachers of color, but for the most part, the teachers I ended up with were, were white for the mm-hmm. most part, um, at least 90% of them. So it was just kind of crazy. And, you know, just from the black experience, like I remember this one time where, you know, and I'll just share this experience and then we can kind of move on to the adult years. Yeah. Yeah. But I just remember this one time when um, I was in this like conflict resolution class, it was like an, an extra elective. So you had to come into school early or something to do it. and. I think there might've been one other black girl in that class. I'm pretty sure everyone was a a female in that class, Mm -hmm. but basically we were putting together a skit based on what we had learned. And we were going to share the skit with the school, like get on stage and everything and perform the skit on this day that was dedicated to like um, bullying and, you know, how to respond to bullying and things like that, which were starting to come up. Like that was starting to become a more prevalent topic in schools. But before then, like bullying wasn't like a thing schools educated students about or like really took seriously like mm-hmm. they do now or try to do more so now. But anyway, yeah. each of us had a role that we created in our skits and then each of us was going to perform it. But then all of a sudden, this non-Black girl <laughs> was like, she wanted my role, which was kind of the lead role for that part of the skit. And I was like, what do you mean when you want my role? Everybody has their own role. And so our teacher, who was actually um, a woman of color, Mm -hmm. was like, oh, well, you know, how do we resolve this or whatever? And I'm like, yeah, I get that this is a conflict resolution class, but I created this role. You know, she needs to play whatever role she created. And I play the one I created. No one else is having this issue right now, you know, with these roles. And why do we have to switch? And so right before this incident, I had... I guess like Oprah was on, my mom was watching Oprah, something was going on with Oprah and she had Halle Berry on her show. And I think this was like maybe a couple years before Halle Berry won the 
uh, Best uh, Female Actress Oscar. And Halle Berry was telling the story about how when she was in high school, um, something went on where she was like nominated and won like prom queen or something like that. But then um, some white girl like contested it and was like, no, you know, such and such will happen or whatever. And so they decided to flip a coin to see who would win. And I no believe she way. called she called heads and Halle Berry won. So she got to keep her, her crown and everything. So this story was kind of like in the back of my mind. So when all this was going on, I was like, all right, well, let's flip a coin and whoever, you know, gets it can have the role. And like whatever Halle Berry called, I called it too. So let's say she said heads and I called heads and that was what it was. And so I got to keep my role. And if something in me told me that I was going to win, like, <laughs> so that's why I was so confident in doing that. But it was just like these subtle things like that. I'm like, how can you be a teacher and a woman of color and not recognize this here. No, this little spoiled entitled chick needs to play whatever part she created, mm-hmm. just like everybody else. Why mm-hmm. all of a sudden is that trying to switch up there? So, yeah, you know, it's, that just really stood out to me at that time. Absolutely. And that was sort of just like the same theme that I saw emerging, you know, as I stepped out into the world as well. Um, just a little bit more into adulthood and just like going off to college and things. So, you know, I went to all girls Catholic school. It was a racially diverse school. Um, however, like I, we had our factions and like um, it was a little segregated. Like for example, all the black kids sat together in the cafeteria, <laughs> you know, all of the Middle Eastern kids sat together in the ca- cafeteria. Um, yeah. All the white people sat together. I mean, like that, that was just the way it was. Cause was it thing. was like, we couldn't, we couldn't segregate, you know, based off of gender. So like we would do it based off of uh, race. And mm. I think that looking back on that experience, it's, it's crazy because my, you know, my high school is under a lot of, uh, got thrown under the bus on social media, you know, with the Black Lives Matter movement um, coming to the forefront. Um, and it's just, it was interesting to look back on that. Um, but they really are taking steps now uh, in the right direction because there were things that happened to students, particularly after I graduated, that was just blatant racism, um, wow. particularly from the administration. Um, but when I went there, it it was really microaggressions um, from my fellow students um, and just being asked like outrageous questions and things like that. Um, and just the way in which like a lot of code switching and things like that, you know, having a girl speak one way to your friends and they come up to you and be like, Hey, yo, da, 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 you know, and it's like, you don't have to talk to me like that. <laughs> um, or being asked to like cornrow somebody's hair. Can you cornrow my hair? Um, it was just, to me that that's just speaks, you know, it's microaggressions. Mm-hmm. Um, but then as I went to, to, to college, um, like I, I mentioned in our first episode, um, it wasn't until my senior year in college that I really just like experienced the, what it means to like have an awakening to become woke. Um, up until that point, uh, it had a lot of blatantly racist things happen to me at that, at, at, at the school. Um, for example, there was a man who walked around our, our, school, you know, our particular um, theater school. And he would call all the black students porch monkeys. And um, <laughs> every time he passed me on the street, I mean, I'm laughing. It's so not funny, but like, it's that yeah. uncomfortable laugh. Um, every time he passed me on the street in particular, he, he would say, are you an African gorilla? Um, and <laughs> every time I passed him and he said that to me, my reaction was just to laugh. But I think my system was just shocked. Um, then anybody would just say that to me. And then hearing the other students 
experienced as well, other Black students at our school, they were outraged. They were ready to go beat this man up. I mean, it turns out he had some psychological problems and like campus police got involved and everything. And, you know, um, it was resolved in that. But like, like you said, I didn't see any of my, my professors step to the forefront and like really take it. And at that point I had had Black professors, um, but I didn't really see them step up. And nowadays I reflect on it and I'm just like, at, at the time it didn't really bother me, but now I reflect on it. I'm like, where was my person like, you know, to go to, where was this faculty member that we mm-hmm. felt we could go to with this stuff? And I just, in my reflection, I was just like, you know what? I think that they were happy to have a seat at the table themselves. And it's mm-hmm. hard to break out of that sort of oppressive environment. And there is certain ways in which you oppress yourself um, in those environments. Um yeah. So other things happened at the school as well. Um, but, you know, around my senior year, I got an awesome professor um, and she really she uh, rocks and boats with the other students in the class. And like, <laughs> some of the students in class um, were really challenging her. But I think that she she really like took us to a new level and challenged us to really open up our perspective. You know, she herself was a woman of color. Um, and she was black, a black woman, not a woman of color, but like a black woman. And um, she helped me open up um, my exploration of that incident of being called, you know, an African gorilla. Um, and I ended up doing a solo performance piece in her class called, um, I threw a banana at his head because I thought it was funny. And it was just an observation and just like of, of being called an African gorilla and what that meant to me. Um, yeah. And it was an awakening. It was an awakening, um, of having been silenced for so long and then now coming to and just being like, no, I have a voice. I am a black woman. This is who I am. Almost having to like say it to myself. I am a black woman. I'm a black woman. And that comes with its things in society, but I know we have to move along. So (laughs) we'll talk about (laughs) No worries. No worries. Yeah. That's interesting. I kind of have like just two examples from like the college days, but one was from a student, uh, a white female student who, so basically, like, you know, you have those dorm rooms where, like, there's a bathroom in the middle and there's, mm-hmm. you know, two people on one side and two people on the other side. So I had just, I had to move to a separate room. So I come to this room and I'm on one side with this girl and my roommate and she's really cool. You know, we hit it off right away so that everything's cool. And then the girl on the other side, like, whoever was supposed to be her roommate or something fell through or left or whatever. So she was the only one on the other side. And then basically these crazy things just kept happening. Like she would have late night parties and be drinking and leave crazy stuff in the bathroom. And the bathroom was always disgusting and trash with stuff. And sometimes, you know, you can lock the door on the other side. So she would lock the door and we would get locked out and couldn't come in to use the bathroom and stuff. So I reported her numerous times for like loudness and for locking the door and all of this stuff. So I reported to the RA. And, you know, she kept me posted on what's going on. I'm like, what are y'all doing about this? Because this is not getting any better. Like, you know, a couple months are going by and she's still acting crazy. And so the RA is like, well, you know, it looks like she's going to leave. She's not coming back next semester. So, you know, she'll be gone soon, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, but that's not okay. Like, she needs to be gone now. So anyway, something happened where she was being loud or crazy or something. And I happened to be like in the study room or whatever. So someone had come, knocked on her door and told her to keep it down or whatever. And so as she's walking down the friends with her hallway with her and her friends, she passes the like study room and like opens the door. And I think I'm the only person in there. She opens the door and it's like, um, I know it was you called to, to make the noise complain on me and blah, blah, blah. And you a bitch. 
and da 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 da. And I was like, oh, hell no. This is the day. <laughs> this is the day. And I got up so quick, but they was out those other doors, like leaving the hallway so fast. Mm-hmm. And it was like, either I go beat her down or I go to my RA. It was like, cause I was right between both of those options in the hallway. And I was like, if I go beat her down, I'm going to be that angry black mm-hmm. who beat this poor little white girl down, even though she was in the wrong numerous times, you know, or I could go to my RA who was also a black female. So I decided to go to my RA and I was just so hyped. She just let me like get it out <laughs> like in her room or whatever. And I was like, no, this b- didn't. I was like, I didn't even report your this time. I was obviously in here studying something you know nothing about. So, so, so yeah, so, you know, I don't remember really what happened after that, but she was gone. And then one of my friends was able to get on the other side of the room. And then my um, roommate ended up going abroad. So then me and my friend were like on either sides. And then we ended up getting like other roommates or whatever, but they were cool. And, you know, we didn't have any more problems. So it's that it was just such a crazy experience. It's that moment you were talking about, though, right? That decision moment. It's right. Yeah. The, well, I had had a life. couple other experiences like that, but I think this was the first time it was like a blatant kind of racist thing for me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But so, yeah, there was there was that time. And then there's one other time I want to quickly share because uh, it's kind of an antithesis to what you shared. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to, you know, keep it rolling. But yeah, yeah. So I also had this experience and I don't even exactly know what to call it because it was from a black female professor. But instead mm. of her supporting me, it was like she left me hanging. And so, you know, she was teaching this class or whatever. And she had a TA who was this younger white guy. And so he would teach a couple of the classes and he would grade some of our papers. And so I had like two A's, two A minuses and two B pluses in her class. So if you average all of those together, because they were about the same points each, what are you going to get for your grade? You're going to get an A minus because you have two A's, two A minuses and two B pluses. Why does chick gave me a B plus? I was livid. And I, so I confronted her and I was like, you know, I was expecting an A minus in this class. Like what's going on? And all of the papers she graded me, I think she gave me the two B pluses and the one A minus. And the TA was the one who graded me on the other ones with the A's. Mm -hmm. So she was like, well, you know, you didn't participate enough in class. And I was like, what? (laughs) Because I did participate. Like, I wasn't Knowing you, Camille, (laughs) you definitely participated in class. Well, still, this was still during my kind of shy period. So I was still, like, coming out of that. But I still participated in this class. Like... You know, I wasn't overly eager to participate all the time, but I did say stuff almost every class period. Mm. You know, there were some people who definitely dominated the the conversation, but there were also people who, who said nothing. Mm. And so I was livid. And so she was like, well, you know, you can um, appeal the grade and blah, blah, blah. And to this day, that's like my one college regret that I did not appeal that grade. Mm. Like I was so mad at her. And then. She was also supposed to be helping me with my African-American studies um, major that I was doing there. And when I presented, so I had to do this like presentation or something for history day or something. And I did my presentation, which she did nothing to help me with. And 
she came up to me afterwards and was like, oh, wow, that was much better than I expected it to be. And when she realized what she had said, she caught herself and I gave her this look and I was like, mm-hmm, thanks. And like walked away. And she yeah. like realized how that had came out wrong. Like, cause I could see that her facial expression, but I was like, who is this chick? Like, she's a black woman up in here. I'm a black woman up in here. She should be doing going the extra mile to, you know, support me, support somebody who's here to like, you know, elevate our, our dynamic as women, as women of color. And she trying to bring me down. Like what the hell? (laughs) So so yeah, yeah, so that was sometimes that's not as apparent. And the fact that it was coming from a, a black woman just like, was like, what the hell? So, and I had better experiences. First of all, I had better experience with male professors and, um, even mm-hmm. white male professors that I, you know, did with some, with her, like, yeah. it was just so crazy, but, but yeah, so let's kind of just dive into like, you know, dating and relationships and, and just kind of racism in general. Yeah. Um, I think nowadays, I mean, before I met my husband, you, the first thing you said was dating. <laughs> yeah. Um, I dated, you know, both black men and, uh, I've dated all types, but particularly, I guess was feeling sort of in, in the white men that I did date, just being fetishized, um, a little bit, especially as a black woman that is also plus size. Um, that was just an interesting experience in itself. Um, but it was lovely to, you know, uh, then meet my part, my current partner. Um, and it was just like, first time seriously dating, like (laughs) a strong black man. (laughs) And that was really refreshing. Um, and I think he's helped me lean more into, um, being a bold black woman. Um, he really does encourage me to own my blackness and like, because he has, had a very different like upbringing in that sense and he encourages me to like delve deeper into what that means and you know as a black man just like now reflecting upon it and now having like a partner who is a black man it's hard not to worry just like for his safety and my husband is six nine so like he's six nine black man not a, not a not a skinny like beanpole black man like a big black man um so just thinking about the ways in which his bodysuit just pro- poses a, f- a threat to America right now. Um, so, you know, with all yeah. the people losing their lives throughout this movement and just like, I, at a certain point I had to turn off the media stream just because I was, you know, watching black men get killed, black women and black men getting killed in, in real time. And the last video I watched it, it shook my soul. And like, I was not okay for like a week. <laughs> and, and, and it's not just black men and women, it's children, children. too. Yeah. Tamar Rice was a child. 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 Like, it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And like, and with, you know, your partner being so like, you know, the strong black man, you're not worried that he can't defend himself. No. It's like you're worried because of how, how he other looks. people perceive People are just automatically yes. going to fear him. Yeah. And that's so messed just up. Just like the idea of him getting pulled over scares the mess out of me. Right. It just, it, think things that aren't in your control, um, how others mm-hmm. perceive you. So that's, that's terrifying in its itself. But you know, like in that regard, black women aren't safe either. And yeah. I'm not, I'm not a black woman who presents as like small and like petite and tiny. So like, you know, police officer could rough me up too. Like just, you know, and there's been moments like that between, you know, my partner and I, where like, if, if he's getting treated unfairly, I'm just like, well, you just need to go tell them blah, 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 blah. 
we need to, you know, ask to speak to the manager and this and that and the other, like the ways in which, you know, as black women, we, we kind of, we kind of do not in an angry black woman way, cause that's a stereotype. Right. But like, you know, defending mm-hmm. ourselves and feeling the need to like speak to what we believe in. Right. Um, I'm like, you right. need to speak. It was at the DMV. I was like, you need to demand this and that and the other. And he's like, let's just go. Let's just go. And I'm just like, but why, 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 why? And it wasn't until later we had a conversation and it really clicked that as presenting as his bodysuit, he doesn't have the ability to do that without potentially like police. Cause there actually are police, um, officers in the NBA here in Maryland. Y'all call it the NBA in Detroit. We call it the secretary of state or DMV. Not y'all. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. But here there's not, you know, the ability for him to freely do that without being perceived as mm-hmm. angry. Yep. So that's just another example. Yeah. The, you share, you share some. So just, you know, the main thing I can think about is just like constantly worrying about, you know, my dad, my brother, my husband, like, especially growing up, like in New York, because, you know, there were several shootings in New mm-hmm. York of black men before, you know, we got to 2020. Like, this ain't no new. Mm-mm. If you watch some of these old TV shows, Family Matters, Fresh Prince, they have all these incidents of when they talk about this and stuff. And that was like in the 90s. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is nothing new to us. It's just like, you know, maybe now something different might happen, you know, with this awakening. And especially since everybody was kind of sheltering in place in 2020 Mm -hmm. and so much crap has already happened this Mm -hmm. year, like for another like police brutality incident to happen and to be recorded and just the same thing to happen. It was like, everybody just exploded because we were already like up to our eyeballs and pissed offness. Yeah. So it was like, it was like the last Mm -hmm. straw, but that it wasn't a new thing though. And so like just constantly worrying about them and stuff. And, and I'm just the type of person I'm very, like, I know you are too, but I'm like just very close with my family and stuff. And like, you know, these people mean the world to me. And so for something to happen to them, I would just lose it. (laughs) Like I would lose it, especially something that could have been avoided. Like cancer is one thing. It sucks. It's messed up, but it's it's not a lot of getting around Mm -hmm. that. Like, but being shot by the police when that could have been avoided or handled a different way, especially when it's always handled a different way with these with white guys who actually have killed mm-hmm. somebody already, mm-hmm. and then they get walked into the the jail or the, the like police station or whatever is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And so you know it just opens us up to like what's going on in today's society and world. You know it's just I feel like you know if ever there was a time for things to really turn around, it's now because like people are just so fed up with the crap that we've been fed for so long. You know, just if we can just hold on to that momentum and hold on to that feeling to really push and strive for change, like I think it's really possible now. Yeah, I guess maybe we can, uh, you know, close out on that. Just talking about what does it mean for you as a Black woman um, to inspire and uplift in, in the world? Just like quickly, if you could sum it up for yourself. Yeah, I mean, to inspire, I definitely think this podcast is going to help us, you know, inspire and uplift because, you know, it just goes to show you like we're just two black women out here who happen to practice Buddhism, you know, doing our thing. And like, you know, when someone may look at us, they may be like, oh, you know, she's this or she's that. But, you know, everyone's so much more than the surface level. Like we have so many intricacies about us and, you know, things about us and things that we do and how we live our life. Like we're not just these stereotypes that people see on the surface because of how we look, because of our body types, because of our skin color, you know, we're so much more than that. And so hopefully you know, we'll be able to to bring that out through this podcast and 
through other things we do in the community to really, you know, leave our mark on the world and, and make a difference. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. <laughs> Nothing to add more to that. So our next episode, just giving you guys a heads up, our next episode, we're going to break down what it means for us to be proud practitioners of Nichiren Buddhism. And so how that, yes. and then how that differs from other types of Buddhism and basically what the impact of being Buddhist has had on our lives in general, uh, specifically this year. 2020, a very trying year. <laughs> yes, 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 definitely. So we will dive right into how we came across this practice and how it has forever changed our lives. You know, this is going to be an amazing episode. So be sure to tune in for our discussion on the significance of the beautiful and bold, black and beautiful. Until next time, stay safe, be you and live life to the fullest. Bold, black, and beautiful. A culture and society podcast brought to you by Kelly Sloan and Camille Lucas.